0: But it's a church to help out the Thatchers, uh, with their audio visual for their church. And he sent me some pictures last week at the end. I got to talk to him today, in fact, on the phone, Brother Donnie. And, uh, so here, I wanted to kind of show you. Thank you very much. I'm sorry about that. Um, I wanted to show you what was purchased with the money that we gave and helped out the Thatchers. And, uh, so there's the camera and, uh, there's also another picture of the camera and the remote. He really likes the remote, silent movement. He can change it much like we have our camera system, be able to pick up a special piano, whatever the case may be any sound when it turns. So that's good. And i uh, would be able to zoom and things like that. And so it's been a great blessing already, Brother Donnie said. And he wanted me to express his thanks to you and a gratitude for us as a church helping out to provide that. And uh, they're supposed to announce in a couple of weeks there in Ireland what the next plan is as far as closures and lockdowns and things like that. He is fearful that it's just going to continue. And uh, so obviously this is a great tool and help there in the ministry. So thank you for giving toward that, or thank you for voting uh, for us as a church to give towards. That. All right, to the book of Jude. And uh, we'll jump back in. We have been looking, starting uh, obviously in verse 1, but verse 4 specifically we saw on our outline. And I'm going to go very quickly. Last week we kind of did a greater review because it's been a while. But uh, number one, we have the creeps of the present. And as we're going through review, if you need an outline, Brother Cliff will be making his way down the aisle. We'll be glad to get you one if you need one, if you'd like to follow along and stay with us. But we talked about these creeps of the present. They're they're the enemy spies. Verse number 4 certain men crept in unawares. They're apostates. uh, They've been planted by the devil and Satan sometimes and often within the church to wreak havoc, or at least assuming that name. And so we've seen that. We saw the comparisons uh, Romans number two, the comparisons from the past. And uh, we've seen the unbelieving Israel, the unrestrained angelic group, and then the unnatural and uncontrolled citizenry. And uh, we said from these three examples, what we derived and reminded ourselves is that to reject uh, or depart from God's truth, it brings divine judgment. And literally, apostasy signs you up for destruction, judgment, and vengeance of God. Then, verse number eight, let's look there. We'll read it again just to kind of familiarize ourselves with it. Likewise, also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignitaries. And so we began to look then at the characteristics of such people. Here are uh, them described by Jude for us. We saw that they are, as that verse says, dreamers that defile the flesh, dreamers that deny authority, dreamers that despise with their words. And here's where we kind of finished up last week. Uh, we saw, first of all, number one, uh, that they speak out of the abundance of their ignorance. And certainly found it true in experience, the Scriptures speak to that. I think Solomon has a lot to say about the fool uttering his own mind and speaking out of his ignorance, uh, that most railings and criticisms find their origin in ignorance or uh, honestly sometimes suppositions. But number two, we also say, saw that they spoil themselves through an abundance of their indulgences okay and the, the last part here, um, verse number 10, uh, is and going into verse number 11, the idea they corrupt themselves. And we'll hit a little bit more on that. And so what we came down to, as they reject and despise God's truth, as they, as they throw off the authority of God, they've got to look somewhere else for the guidance in their life. And we made this statement at the end there. The fact is this, they're left with, as a rudder in their life, guiding and directing them, their old sinful nature. And, and he makes that point here in verse number 10. Where does that get you? What's the the out, uh, outstanding result of allowing your nature, your flesh, to control. And uh, to, for that to be of authority, for you to be a self-authority, if we could describe it as such, uh, the result is this. It's corruption, he says. And the very term there in the Greek literally l- l- means corruption unto destruction. Corruption unto destruction. And that's why in the verse we have for tonight, he begins at Verse number 11, we spoke about this or alluded to it. He said this, woe unto them. Woe unto them. I don't know about you, but when I read the word woe, and even in my studies for the message, it's funny. The word woe, if you're going to say, where is that found the most? It's pretty amazing how often it's found in Revelation. As we come near the end and, and the end times arrive and what's, uh, the judgment of God is poured out upon the earth, there are many times over that woe, woe unto mankind, woe unto those that do this and so forth. And uh, that is certainly in keeping with the idea here. Look at verse 11. Let's read the whole thing and uh, then we'll delve into it. For they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Boy, I tell you, Jude has a way of putting a bunch of stuff into one verse, amen? And uh, it may be one verse here, but we are talking about at least three different, actually, I'd say maybe more than that if you uh, involve some other um, chapters of the same story. But three different stories are all wrapped into the one verse here. And uh, it really is this. You say, what is he saying in verse 11? Well, he's developing. He's elaborating, he's expounding upon the end of verse 10. When he says, okay, they corrupt themselves unto destruction, he wants to give some examples of that. Listen, if these apostates don't repent, if these apostates do not submit and put themselves under the authority of God, all right, now we've got problems because here is their end. Here is their end result. And he basically says, all right, I've already given you three Old Testament examples. Uh, Let me give you three more. That this corruption will bring destruction. And so he gives us these examples of this truth playing out in the lives of people that you and I are familiar with that we certainly know by name and we know by story. And so we've seen this, and we're going to title it this, letter D. Uh, now we have dreamers that demonstrate this truth in the Old Testament. So he characterized these dreamers, these creeps, uh, those apostates that are in the church and even outside times. But he's described them. Now he says, let me give you some examples. Let me show you what they look like uh, in practice. Uh, if you were to identify one, he says, let me identify three of them for you. The first one in verse 11, you know it well, it's Cain. Cain, and he is uh, a picture of a rebel against God's authority. Cain is an interesting uh, study. Because honestly, you have to say this. Yeah, uh, Cain is sadly the apple that didn't fall far from the tree. His parents there in the Garden of Eden, they, they rebelled against the instructions of God. And in this area of rebellion, obviously, he kind of took over his parents and yet took it much farther. And, you know, we've often heard that um, uh, what one generation allows in minimum or in minute, the next generation allows in excess. And there's truth behind that statement. That's a, that's a principle that has played out in history and not only Christian um, uh, cultures and society among Christian people, but also secular people. And I would dare say it has played out in America, has it not? Well, one generation says, oh, that's okay, or oh, we'll open the door a little bit. It kind of opens at the rest. And certainly I think Adam and Eve have reaped a little bit of what they sowed in their own rebellion against the instructions of God in the garden. And guess what? Here comes Cain. Firstborn, uh, the son that they're proud of, man, he is it. And he does likewise. It's abundantly clear, too. And so we want to understand the story. If Jude says, okay, uh, they have gone, and this is a great statement, they've gone in the way of Cain. They've literally taken up the path. Okay, Cain did this. He made these decisions. He acted this way, and so he says, "Listen, these apostates—they act similarly." What? What is that way? Well, first of all, let's understand—he uh, obviously rebelled against the instructions of God. But let's back up and get a uh, kind of set the table, if we might. We can gather easily from God's interactions with Adam and Eve that he had taught them and was demonstrating that a blood sacrifice was necessary for atonement. The Bible in the Old Testament, or excuse me, New Testament, we know this. Hebrew says, For without the shedding of blood there is no remission of? Okay, so uh, that is a theme throughout the entire Scriptures. Christ started it with Adam and Eve sin. He had to make them a covering, right? A clothing we call it, but literally it was an example and a symbolic that he had to kill an animal to provide that clothing. And so we can certainly gather that not only in that instance, but throughout the di- the days and the weeks that followed, God taught Adam and Eve. All right, when it comes to offering sacrifices for your sin. Looking ahead to the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you need to offer a blood sacrifice. Because we come to Cain and Abel and we know the story well. Abel takes one of the lamb and he takes some of his flock and he offers it to God and God is pleased with that offering. But we come to Cain and Cain is a, a farmer and he takes some of his fruits and vegetables and, and maybe cucumbers and tomatoes. Mmm, that sounds good, doesn't it? And, uh, uh, you name it, zucchini. Well, you know what? Let's throw, let, let's throw Brussels sprouts on there and things like that. Let's burn that up. Amen. Uh, but anyway, okay, he throws all this produce on there. He tosses it on there and, and that's it. And, the Bible tells us his offering was rejected. Now, some will say, well, we don't see it in scriptures where God made that clear. How was Cain supposed to know? I like to think reasonably. Okay, let's reason about this. Let me ask you this. How much of even God's word and time did God spend to clearly and explicitly tell the Jews what a sacrifice had to be? How was that? How much was that lined out saying, hey, you need to do this, it needs to be this, or if you don't have that, you can do this in its place? And and my goodness, how much of the Old Testament was explained to the Jews? Now, my friend, if he would do that for the nation of Israel, my friend, he had to have done it for Adam and Eve and their family. He had to explain it. Now you say, Well, we don't have that here. Well, my friend, it's up to God when He reveals certain things to the rest of us, Amen. When he decides to put him in, and boy, when he did for Israel, boy, we have Moses and the Mosaic Law, and it explains it fully, the symbolic nature of a uh, sacrifice and the blood sacrifice that was necessary. So I would just contend with you, friend. I think it's clearly obvious that Cain knew better. Cain understood The whole family would have, and certainly from even the example of what God had done for Adam and Eve. And so uh, imperative to that was the fact that God had instituted it and instructed it as the way of forgiveness. It was a picture of the means of salvation. What is that? That's the way of faith. I mean, you're trusting in that and the atonement that had to be accomplished through the uh, giving blood. But here's the problem. What does Cain do in response to that? Well, he comes to offer sacrifice, and he chooses his own way. He rebels against what God has instructed, much like the apostate that uh, Judas pointed out. He says, hey, the apostate of today, that creep of today is just like Cain, because what? He refuses the instructions of God, and he goes his own way. If you think of Cain, his was a way of selfishly devised good works. See, he was mad at God because, listen, this is is what I worked for. This is what I have to offer because I worked. Uh, My friend, in that, His was a way of pride, of self-achievement. Now, Cain is very much the poster child for Judaism in Christ's day in every modern religion today that seeks righteousness apart from faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. See, Cain is bringing his own work, his own efforts. He's not offering what God has dictated. He's not following the instructions of God and and allowing this animal to represent that Jesus Christ would die somewhere down the way. And and I I can't do anything for it. There has to be the shedding of blood for my sins. No, he says, no, I worked hard. I tilled the ground. I watered it. And I I grew these vegetables. And I, I put a lot of work in this. So, God, here is my sacrifice. I want you to take it. You realize and understand why God rejected it? It was all of him and and his selfish uh, presentation of his works. You see, though uh, Judaism of that day and works-based religion of today, though they claim to be worshiping God, their actions and heart are full of rebellion against God. Think of it if we were to put it in terms of a child okay? Um, Let's say a teacher asks a child to do a certain work uh, in the classroom. A a child quickly comes up, and they come in to hand in their sheet of paper, and the teacher looks at him and says, well, you've obviously done some things, but you didn't do it like I asked. It's not according to the instructions that I gave you. Uh, Have you ever seen a child just stomp off then? Because they did it their way. This is how they wanted to do that. And, and this is exactly what, man, this is, uh, uh, I want to do it my way. You should accept it. Isn't it good enough? And yet didn't follow the instructions. And that's literally what Cain was. Now, what did Cain demonstrate? Well, the fact is this, this rebellion is characterized by an unteachable spirit. See, Cain didn't say, hey, okay, God, you say that's a, so." You saying I need to go get a, a, an animal and offer a blood sacrifice? Yes, Cain, that's, that's what I asked. That's what I told you. Okay, no, he didn't do that. He didn't listen and try to be instructed, teachable. Not at all. In fact, he was so unteachable uh, that he refused to approach God on God's terms. And therein is like another great description of the apostate. I'll come to God on my terms. And it's not just an apostate that sometimes falls into this. This, this can be others. Have, have you ever heard somebody say, well, you know what? Um, I'll come to church when I'm good and ready. You know, I'm going to wait later in life, and then, then I'll get serious about God, and then I'll come to church and find out all about God. You know, I tell you, that's the beginning of an attitude that says, I want to come to God on my terms. How often you've seen it in somebody's life, they have that attitude but the bottom is pulled out. The carpet is pulled out from them. Oh, really? Can I tell you? God wants you and I to come to Him on His terms. To do anything other than that, it's rebellion. Rebellion. It's rebelling against His authority. Some have called Cain the father of all false religions. And uh, certainly I think that is apropos, uh, because that is often where it has started, certainly in the garden even before that. But he could also be called the forerunner of all apostates. And boy, the fallout of his rejection of God. Uh, now think about this. Now, don't miss this. Okay? Because sometimes in our human mentality, and there would be people in the world say, man, that was unfair of God to reject Cain. I mean, how did he feel? He's standing next to Abel, and God says, okay, Abel, I accept your sacrifice. Cain, sorry, don't accept it. It's no good. I reject it. Oh, poor Cain. Now, can I tell you? <laughs> you feed that story to the mainstream media, and that's exactly what they say. Jesus Christ is discriminative and, and all these other things. Okay, or God is a discriminator. I mean, they, they would roast God. But you know what we fail to re- remember in that story? No, 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 no. God didn't reject Cain first. Cain rejected God first. Cain said, no, no, no. I'm not going to come to you on your terms. I'm going to decide how I come to you. And oh, my goodness, that's a prideful way to come to God, isn't it? Hey, on my terms. And so, yeah, certainly the fallout was in response to his rejection of God, God rejected him, and we know how that played out. Um, He then because of that, took out his anger and fury on Abel, had been obedient and honoring to God and his instructions. And boy, isn't that true? I mean, we see that, unfortunately, more often than we would like. The ungodly who, who uh, are maybe being judged in their lives, whatever that is, boy, they love to take it out on the godly. I mean, think about it, okay? I think of teenagers sometimes. I remember in the youth group and. There'd be times where I'd highlight somebody who did something right and so fun. And uh y- you know what would happen. Another teenager would look at and say, Goody two shoes. Youth pastor's pet. And, and, and isn't that funny how immediately the ungodly want to attack that who the one who's doing right? And boy, we see it in our own homes, right? Frankly, we often see it in our own heart. When maybe we aren't doing right, and somebody else is, and our heart is smitten, but boy, instead of getting it right, we lash out at them, and boy, that's exactly what, and you want to talk, what is a good glimpse window into his heart? Here's Cain. What? You didn't accept mine? You accepted his? Boy, it goes and kills Abel. Takes it out on him. Uh, It it is funny, because you think about it, ironic is not really funny, it is ironic. Here is Cain, who was too proudful to slay a lamb, but he'd slay his brother. He'd take his life. Whatever reason, he didn't want to kill a lamb and and too proud. Maybe that was below him. Who knows what all factored into that. He just didn't choose God's way. But boy, he'd be more than happy to kill his brother and did so. He was willing to slay his own brother. What a shame. And for this, he was cursed and marred. Have you ever thought of who Cain should have been? You know what it should have been like? When I stand up here and I say Cain, we all should be like, "Oh wow. The first son. He is the first human born here on earth." He he should be renowned. He should be like, "Oh, Cain, man, he is he, he is like the uh, the uh, in that day and time or in the Old Testament at least, the firstborn boy, they had it. They received the, the birthright and things like that. That should have been Cain. He should have been the pride and joy of his parents. But my friend, you and I know it well. He became a rightful pariah and ashamed to not only his family, but the whole human race. I I, I jokingly say this sometimes about the the characters of scriptures we don't like. Have you ever met anybody named Cain? Maybe you have, but it's not typically a name people want to go around. Oh, yeah, I'm Cain. (laughs) Who'd you kill today? That's not Typical. Why? Because it, it, it's labeled. It's, it, 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 boy, you mentioned Cain, and certainly for us who know the Scriptures, man, it does not carry a good association. And that's what Jude said. This is the way of Cain, this end of the path of rebellious apostate. It, it would do us well, and you say, okay, um, let's make it practical. It, it would do us well to ask if there's any rebellion in our own hearts to the instruction and authority of God in our own lives whether passive or active. And I, I think that is really the key for some of us because we're all different and sometimes we all react and rebel differently. Some of us are active in our rebellion. What's active rebellion? Well, it's stubbornly not doing something and and uh, that God has instructed. It's doing something that God has forbidden. Even though you know that he's forbidden, you do it. It's It's the picture of shaking a, a fist in God's face. It's a defiant behavior. It's like the child that you say, okay, go to bed, go do this. And they're like, no. That's an active rebellion. It's kind of in your face. and, And as a parent, sometimes you like that better simply because you know it's there. Uh, it's obvious, they don't hide it, 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 they wear it on their sleeve, it's clear, and and, and sometimes that's how we are with God, God speaks to us in a service, God speaks to us through his word, God speaks to us through his Holy Spirit and tells us to, to go do that, go hand that track, go call that person, go talk to that person, you need to say this, don't think like that, and we say, no, I want to do it my own way. I want to think what I want to think. I want to say what I want to say. And I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to give that. I don't. Want to, and we, we actively rebel against God. But there's also passive rebellion. And that takes place in the heart of a Christian. And it, my friend, it's much more evasive. It's much more hard to extract and expose. It's not in your face. You know, it, it's not clear and obvious at, at first glance. But it's rebellion nonetheless. It doesn't stubbornly stand in defiance and like the uh, a- active rebellion. No, they'll verbalize it, and sometimes we verbalize that to God. Not today. I'm not going to do it today. No, I don't want to do that. We'll verbal. But passive uh, it typically doesn't use words. It it rather simply ignores the instruction. It. it uh, has the idea of offering excuses. It, uh, we, in our heart, we treat the truth and what God says like we never heard it. Or He says, don't do that, and we want to keep doing it. So we just we claim ignorance. We, we claim inability to do it. We offer excuses, and we pick and choose obedience while leaving uh, other things undone. And it's just as much as rebellion. And I would say and submit that I believe it's more of a prevalent form of rebellion in our churches and among Christian people. We're not actively always doing this and shaking our fist at God, but there's things we know we ought to do and we're just kind of like, eh, I'll just kind of ignore it. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll just kind of let it pass by because I really don't want to do that. And we just kind of let it go and God speaks. and, eh, nah. and We just kind of act like we're not, oh, I didn't hear that, I didn't know that. I, we, we claim ignorance or inability. The fact is this, that both are kinds of rebellion. One is more obvious and clear, but both are rebellion. Uh, certainly for most of us, our minds and our hearts have been drawn last year or so to the end times. Certainly if I were to ask you, as some of us, many of us have had discussions, uh, we, we certainly see Christ's return drawing near every day. And it seems like when before we were inching towards it, we're moving at warp speed now. And so we see that. We see the the signs of the times. I I know we we can't tell exactly when Christ returns, but don't you remember Jesus Christ says, look to the sky? You're going to notice things. You're going to see things happening, and it's going to be indicative. The end is near. You don't know the exact time, but, boy, it will still speak and tell you uh, that, boy, it's getting near. And so many of us would think to that end. And, and I'll just tell you, in light of that, I, the Lord has just burdened me. The Holy Spirit has just led me multiple times, as you have heard, these last few weeks and months, to really focus on the thought that we need to surrender to God's authority. Jesus Christ's lordship in our life in every way possible. His leadership, because his lordship is indicative of his leadership. We sometimes get this, I don't know, sometimes maybe, we get this thought of lordship, and we think, oh, Lord. The reality is, all we say, mean when we say lordship of Christ, it means he is the leader. He's my, He guides and directs what he says I do. And so, uh, boy, uh, his authority is so needing for us to respect it, to honor it, to obey it, to heed it, allow him to have the authority. You see, because difficult times, I believe, are coming for the church. There was a time that I did not think it would be for generations after I lived. But my friend, it seems like it is close. Whether in my generation or my children's generation, difficult times are coming. And here is a simple truth I would encourage you with. The fact is this, if we have failed to bow to him in every area of our lives, then we will surely fail to live for him. See, if we don't bow the knee, and I love that song, bow the knee. It's the idea of surrendering, submitting to our Lord and Savior. He is our leader. He is our God, the authority of God in my life. I may not like it, and it may not be the thing that I would choose, and my own flesh and nature wants to go this way, but I will bow the knee to God. And then when I bow the knee to God, it then enables me, empowers me to do what? Live for my God. What he says I will do, where he leads, I will go. I will live for him. But boy, if you've never bowed the knee, ain't no way you're going to live for him. And so sometimes we can't hang on to areas in our life where we haven't bowed the knee. And boy, right now there isn't a chance that we're going to live for him in that area. And I'll say this, especially when the going gets tough. Let me take it a step further because I don't know what the days ahead hold. But I will say this, and if we have failed now to live for him, we will surely fail to die for him if and when it comes to that. If we don't bow the knee, we will not live. And if we do not live for God, push comes to shove, and people are saying you will either deny Jesus Christ or we will put you to death. My friend, if you have not chosen to live for him, if you have not surrendered to live for him, you will not surrender to die for him. That authority has to be recognized, and an apostate certainly does not. Rebels against that authority, beginning with not bowing to knee. Cain would not bow in offering the right sacrifice. Tonight, could I encourage you and I to make sure that there are no seeds of rebellion in our lives somewhere? There's no little Cains hanging around in some area. Uh, The idea is that there's no area in our life where we've started to go down the way of Cain. When we said, okay, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. I'm just going to ignore what God wants. I I don't really need to change that. I've lived my whole life this way, and why should I change that now? Why should I make any change? Boy, we start going down that way, and it's the beginnings of a rebel. Can I put it this way? (laughs) Root out the rebel. Root out the rebel. Get him out of your life. Whatever area, whatever place, if there's something in your life that you have not bowed the knee to God, start there. And then as you bow the knee, then you can live for God and you start applying the principles and the truth and the word of how to bring him glory and bring him honor. And then as you choose to live for him, my friend, if it ever gets to that, you will joyfully walk to your death for him. Bow it. Bow the knee. Choose to live for him. And if it ever comes to it, my friend, may you and I joyfully die for him. Because what is Death graduation day the day we get to see our savior face to face what a joy it will be But it starts with you and I saying, I don't want any Cain in any area of my life. I don't want any kind of rebel. Number two, great story, right? Okay, first of all, Cain. Number two, we come to Balaam in verse 11. And we'll describe him as a reward seeker ignoring God's authority. A reward seeker. Man, this is a great story, isn't it? Uh, One of my favorite of the Old Testament. Every time I come back to it and read it in the Old Testament, man, it's exciting. The interesting part of this verse, now look at it again, verse 11. The interesting part is, He describes the apostate as one that runs greedily. He says, they have ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward. Now, that's a great statement. He really just uh, makes it kind of uh, perfectly clear, okay? That description of running greedily, uh, what that means is this. It's an intense passion uh, leading to giving up oneself to something or for something with great abandonment. I've got to have it, I've got it, I want it, I want that. And and you just, with great abandon, you just abandon anything that you ought to hang on to. And you abandon it, and with intense passion, you pursue it. Uh, The word translated as error. When he says, "Eh, go after, the Greek word here, "Eh, they go after, they run greedily after the error of Balaam. It literally means to wonder, or to go astray. So, that begs the question, doesn't it? How did Balaam go straight? Uh, how did he wonder from where he should have been? I think it's a good kind of um, connects well to when we talk about the way of Cain. Balaam got off the way, <laughs> the way he should have gone. So he strayed, he wandered from that. Balaam was greedy of material things. He loved money, possessions. He loved the profitability. Now here's the problem. He was a prophet of God, so he loved the fact, the profitability that his gifts from God as a prophet could bring him. Well, one day, the king of Moab, his name was Balak, and Balak came to him and he, he, because he saw the Hebrew nation. They were traveling near the nation of Moab, and he saw them there, and he, he didn't like that. He, he didn't like the uh, them, and he didn't want them anywhere near uh, the border uh, uh, there as they were on their way to settle the land of Canaan. And I, I think it's kind of funny because, can I tell you, the Middle East, the nations there have never been a friend of, Ju- of the Jews of Israel. And it goes back even to the Old Testament here, and so it is true, and uh, how much they hate them, and despise them, and treat them ill. And so, uh, same was with Barak and, and Moab at that time. He, they weren't even coming into his country, and he, he boy, he didn't, he didn't like the stories that he'd heard of other nations falling before these Jews, and how others had cowered before the Jews. And so, he didn't like that, so he decides to call this prophet, who had a great reputation. He decided to call Balaam, who who had a good reputation as a prophet, successful, and he threw a big Monetary reward at him. For what? He said, Balaam, this is what I want you to do. I, I want you to come with me. We're going to go stand in a place and we're going to look at the camp of the Hebrews, of the Jews. We're going to look there and I want you to pronounce a curse on them. I want you to curse that nation because I just, I don't like the Jews. I don't like Israel and, and all that they're doing. And, and uh, I, I like uh, how. Um, Peter described it in in Second Peter chapter two. Remember the chapter that parallels Jude here. Second uh, Peter chapter two, verse fifteen. This is how Peter put it: "Which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam." There he uses that word "way" again. The son of Bozar, Now notice this: who loved the wages of uh, unrighteousness. What a description. I mean, it's very clear from Peter and Jude that this was the description. In other words, the wages of unrighteousness were greatly enticing to Balaam, so much so that he valued the reward, even the term that Jude uses in the verse, over the instructions of God. He would have known exactly the type of prophecy and certainly God's relationship with Israel. That was clear. Balaam knew that, and yet he valued what. Oh, How much money are you going to give me, Mr. Balak? King Balak, what's the reward? What are you going to pay me to to do this curse? Well, that's what he did. And he knew better. And here's the, I mean, you tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. Remember what happened in the story? God turns things up on top of his head. It's recorded in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. Four different times. Balaam comes with Balak standing there and they get all ready and well uh, in fact it, it's kind of interesting. It happens at three different places. Okay. The first place they go to, they put seven altars, I believe is what it is, and they offer these altars and they say, Okay, and Balak says, All right, Balaam, get up there. <laughs> he gets up there and he says, Okay, curse them. And he gets up, and out of his mouth comes blessings for Israel. And I just imagine, it's going to be kind of funny, you kind of like look at Balak's face and like, and it's funny because, what, what did you just do? <laughs> and, and this is hilarious to me, like, you talk about dents. Well, let's go try over there. So they pick a second place, seven altars, they offer these things. All right, Balak, step up there and curse them. He gets up there and guess what? Curses don't come out of his mouth, blessings do. I'm just telling you right now, Balaam's fit to be tied. What kind of game are you playing, Balaam? And Balaam has told him, you know what, I can, I'm only going to be able to say what God, because we'll see in a moment what happened. Well, God already told him, you're going to say what I give you to say. He's already told him that, and yet Balaam's like, oh man, I want this money. Do you understand what's happened to Balaam? Now, Balaam should have known and said, listen, we can do this all day, but you aren't going to get anything but a blessing for Israel. But he doesn't do that. Why? Because you know what Balaam saw? Don't miss it. He saw his riches slipping through his finger. He saw the reward going to be gone. And he valued that so much more than pleasing God and following the instructions of God. And boy, the money was just slipping away. And so when when Balaam says, okay, you know what? I really don't like it. Let's go try that field over there. They go to the field. Seven sacrifices. All right, Balaam, you get up here and you you pronounce a, 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 a curse. He gets up. Bada bing, bada boom. Blessing on Israel. Then they try it one more time in the same place, and I don't know why, but they do it again. And in that one, if I'm not mistaken, from Numbers chapter 22 through chapter 24, not only a blessing for Israel, but a curse upon the Moabites. Now listen, it's comical to me. I mean, Balak is fit to be tied. He's angry, he's mad, because Balaam's like, oh no, there goes my money, my reward, everything that he wanted, uh, you see it on your outline there, as I've already uh, pointed out. He tried to pronounce a curse upon Israel for Balak, and yet each time God turned the curse into a blessing. <laughs> In fact, I want you to see it from the Scriptures, because God later records this. When he's giving the, the law and dictates for how Israel is supposed to, to live and things, he, he rem- reminds them of this story. Turn with me to Deuteronomy, if you will. Deuteronomy chapter 23. We'll actually back up to verse 3. The verses we want to get at are in verse 4 and 5, but let's start in Deuteronomy chapter number 3, or excuse me, 23. uh, Deuteronomy 23, uh, and then we'll start in verse 3 just to kind of see the context of it where God is speaking, certainly uh, here to the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 23. Look with me in verse 3 if you will. He says, an Ammonite or a Moabite. Now remember, Balak was a king of the Moabites, okay? So an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter to the congregation of the Lord, even to their tenth generation. Uh, and we know the, the Old Testament principle of visiting the sins of the father and the son and son, so forth and so forth, okay? Here it's to the tenth generation. Even to the tenth generation shall they not enter to the congregation of the Lord forever. And the people are like, why? Why is that? Well, look at verse 4. Because they met you not with bread and with water in the way when you came forth out of Egypt. And because they hired against thee Balaam, the son of Baor, of Pithor, of Mesopotamia, to curse thee. Nevertheless, the Lord thy God would not hearken unto Balaam. But the Lord thy God turned the curse into a blessing unto thee. Because the Lord thy God loved thee. And my friend, you know what I say to that? Amen. You know why? Because that same God will do the same thing for you. Someone want to curse you. Someone to has it out for you. My friend, you just walk with God. Depend on God. Because I know this. God loves you. And he can turn a curse into a blessing. In your life, He will bless you, and, and I love that. That's, that's Christ, or excuse me, that's God making it clear. Um, I, I just think poor, poor Balaam couldn't believe what was coming out of his mouth. <laughs> uh, certainly, um, uh, he thought, or Balak thought, Balaam was playing a trick, probably, and so forth. I love how Peter. Described in 1 Peter chapter 2. So turn over there with me if you will. Okay? So we've read, we see, we know what Jude says, but let's see that parallel passage, 2 Peter chapter number 2. Look what, um, what Peter describes it at. I love the word he uses here. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. We read verse 15. I showed that to you a moment ago, but look at verse 16. Speaking of Balaam, but was rebuked for his iniquity, his sin, his wrongdoing. The dumb ass, the donkey speaking with a man's voice forbade or forbade the madness of the prophet. I love that, okay? Uh, Get it. Don't miss it. I think this is humorous. I think this this probably plays into why God did it. You know what? If I came in and I said, you guys won't believe this. We just bought a donkey, and this afternoon that donkey talked to me. And he was using a man. It came out, a man's voice. In fact, uh, he, he, he sounded like Dave Cooper. I mean, he was really weird. And that horse had his voice. And it had a man's voice, and it spoke to me. And, 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 and you'd be like this. You're not in your right mind. You need some time off, permanent. <laughs> you need to get away. Okay, now listen to me. It, it, that word madness in the Greek, it literally means not in the right mind. He says the madness of Balaam, now, now get this, don't miss this. God used the madness of a donkey speaking with a human's voice. And I'll tell you, this happened a long time before Mr. Ed, the talking horse. So I like to name the donkey Fred because Fred became before Ed. But anyway, it, listen, madness. You say, that's crazy, a donkey talking? Yeah, but you know why that he, God used such madness? Because he wanted to show Balaam the madness of his way. That's what Peter says. To forbid, forbade the madness of the prophet. Boy, God used the madness of an animal speaking to correct the madness of the prophet. He should have stopped, obviously, right then and there. And and think about it. Let me put it this way. Let me back up. You say, what was he stopping? What was the madness of Balaam? It was this. And for you and I, it's true. It is madness to compromise compromise conviction for reward. It is madness to compromise what we know is the truth, the right way, the, the, what ought to be done for, oh man, I want that money, I want that, I want that wealth, I want that popularity, I want this. Okay, just compromise your conviction. Just give in a little bit, just twist it down. It's not, listen, if you just give a little curse, oh man, I'll pay you well and nobody really know the difference, it's okay. Boy, my friend, it is madness to compromise conviction for reward. It's madness, sheer madness. Balaam should have stopped right there. He should, have, uh, he should have ended it. But that pull of the filthy mammon, that filthy lucre was too great for Balaam. And he saw his great reward slipping through his fingers. And so what happens? Oh no, Balaam, man, I can't, (laughs) after that donkey incident, you know he's got to be questioning things, and then he gets up to give a curse, and all that comes out is a blessing. He may have been questioning his own sanity. But Revelation speaks of, now this is interesting, speaks of the doctrine of Balaam. And it goes to shed the light on that of what is the doctrine of Balaam. Well, Balaam came up with an idea. He decides, well, you know, King Balak, if you can't curse him, But you want to hurt them? Here's what you do. You corrupt them through compromise. Now, isn't that ironic? He himself has just shown the madness of compromise, but uh, in somewhat, I don't know, subtlety, ingenuity, he says to like, hey, I, I want you to, here, here's how you can succeed against the Jews. You corrupt them. You get them entangled with immorality. You, you get them uh, involved with that and then worshiping false gods and idols of the land. And, and you influence that and try to cause that. That's how you will defeat Israel. And my friend, sadly, it was all too successful. The very next chapter in Numbers 25, you know what we read of? Israel falling into idolatry. Worshiping false gods, pagan gods. They faltered, and there was Balaam. He collected the reward. And yet, sometime later, it's recorded a few chapters later, in Numbers chapter 31, there was a time when the Israelites captured and defeated the kings of Midian. And guess who they found? There was Balaam. And in that, Balaam was taken and killed, slain, and and, uh, put to death. Yet long before he undermined the nation of Israel through corruption or through corrupting them with compromise, he had already compromised his own convictions by valuing reward over his responsibility to God. Now, listen to me, don't miss this. Compromisers always want to push their compromise on other people. Someone who who compromises their convictions, they don't want you to hold your conviction because you know what, friend? That makes them feel uneasy. And so here is Balaam. He's peddling, hey, compromise, compromise, compromise. Hey, get Israel to compromise. And uh, so it is true. It seems like in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 4, our Savior uh, spoke about apostates who are like Balaam. He said this, no man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. And don't forget his application, the immediate application of the principle was this. You cannot serve God and mammon, money, reward. They can't both be masters in your life. Some kind of reward, some kind of possessions, materialism, popularity, you name it, the the fulfillment of your lust and desires. If that is the reward that you value more than anything, you can't serve that and God. You know, when we mention the name Balaam now, it has become synonymous with compromise, apostasy, a slippery character, don't miss it, that can be bought for the right price. You can just imagine as Balak's uh, uh, emissary and ambassadors came to Balaam and said, hey, uh, our boss wants you to come do a curse. How much will he pay? What's the price? Because if the price isn't right, I won't do it. But if the price is right, I will compromise my conviction." May I ask you this in all sincerity? Do you have a price? What's the price that you are willing to pay to compromise your convictions? Could I put it this way? Is there a carrot, a popularity, approval... Peer pressure, personal enjoyment, wealth, possessions, uh, you name it, riches that Satan can wave in front of you to get you to compromise your convictions, to choose reward over obedience? Could I ask it this way? What is the thing that could buy the compromise of your convictions concerning God and his instructions? So fill in the blanks and let me ask you one more question. Or Actually, let me make one, more, one statement and we'll be done. What is the thing that could buy the compromise of your conviction concerning God and His instructions? What will it be? You name the, the conviction. Well, I believe that God wants me to give a tithe. I, I believe God wants me to share the gospel. I, I believe I ought to assemble together with believers. I, I, I believe it's God that I should do this, read my Bible every day and study to show. I, I believe it's my conviction that I should dress like this, that I should talk like this, that, that I shouldn't do that, but I should do this. What is it going to cost? What, what will buy your compromise of your conviction in that area? But understand first, if there is anything that can buy your compromise, Satan's going to try it. He'll find it. He will try it. That's why it is imperative for you and I to examine our own hearts and lives and say, wait a minute. I don't want there to be anything that he can dangle in front of me that will get me to compromise my convictions. There's nothing, no reward, nothing that he can offer to say, hey, 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 Stephen, look at this. Look at this. Don't you want this? Hey, just give in a little bit. Would you just give a curse instead of a blessing? Would you just come this way and just, don't don't you want it? Because he'll do it. How easy it is to serve mammon or something else offered other than God. And that's what happens to an apostate. How often do we see somebody start out okay? Maybe a pastor, maybe a Christian in a faithfulness to God. They're true, they're honest, but something grips their heart. Something garners their attention. The Satan or the world or the old flesh dangles the carrot in front of them. And gains their affection more so than God has it. And then that thing becomes their master. Because no man can serve two masters. And soon they have run greedily after the error of Balaam. You say, hey, aren't the Scriptures littered? Littered with people who've done this. Yeah. The wisest man that ever lived. Do you realize that he had carrots dangled in front of him that turned his heart away from God? Do you realize that Paul speaks of Demas? He's loved this present world. Satan came and said, hey, Demas, look at this. Look at the the wealth or the riches or look at the fulfillment of your lusts and desires of the flesh. Hey, Demas, coming into the world. You can do it. It's not just compromise your convictions. And time after time after time, the history of Christians is littered with people whose price has been found. Satan discovered it. And my friend, they compromised the very convictions they were to live by. Balaam is such a one. You and I could list people today alive who have found a different kind of reward, but one nonetheless that they have forsaken God and his instructions for. Apostates do it. May it not be found in you and I. May you and I say, nope, no price. I'll have nothing in my life that could buy my compromise and my conviction.'" I'll tell you, friend, you know what the world needs? It needs some Christians who shine brightly, who taste like salt, and that will only happen when we don't compromise our convictions. We'll get into the last part of the verse. I would have loved to get into Korah tonight, but we will not have the opportunity to do so. Let me remind you of those prayer requests, Brother Cliff. You'll bring those, collect any along the way. If you have one, please give Brother Cliff's attention.